turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Epistle to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to consider just one verse this afternoon, verse 16. And we've come to a good place to pause in the book of Hebrews, so we return now to our series on worship. To now consider, after considering the um, the foundational doctrines of worship and the principles of worship, to now start considering the various elements of worship that are found in the worship service. And today we consider the element of worship that is sung praise. And the first of uh, probably at least two or three sermons on the topic of exclusive psalmody in worship. Well, with that, by way of introduction, please turn your attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. And let's now pray that the preaching would be blessed as well. Our Father and our God, We come once again to the preaching of the word, and the preacher recognizes his utter inability to preach the word of God as it must be preached if he were to preach it solely in his own strength. And especially, Lord, as this has become a divisive topic, though once the church was greatly unified in it, we know, Father, though it has become today a divisive topic, we pray that you would give me charity in the preaching. But above charity to men, Father, a charity to you, O God, and a love for what pleases you, and that the charity of these people would be first aimed in your direction, that they would love to give you what you want, Lord, and that we would as well be charitable to our brethren who disagree with us on this point. Help us, Father, by the preaching of the word to see the truth of the word and the truth of the doctrine that will be preached. Lord, we need Jesus Christ desperately in the preaching of the word. So would you overshadow the preacher and give him the spirit of Christ that he would proclaim the truth of Christ by the power of the Holy Ghost. And so, Father, we pray now that you let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of these dear people should not stand in the wisdom of this man, but rather in the power of God. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our concern thus far in our series on worship has been first and foremost, I pray you have seen, the very glory of God. To hallow God and to worship him as he has asked in spirit and in truth. And his word is truth, as the scripture says. And flowing out of that concern has been that all we do as a church has been based on the very word of God. To not worship according to our tradition, to not worship according to our preference, but in this vital topic of worship, to be Bereans and to search the scripture. You know, if you tell somebody, you go to the RP church in town, you're probably going to say, oh, you go to that church of psalm singers. Uh, Sad to say, that's what our church has become known for as a denomination. That was not once the case. Our distinctives were totally different. Won't get into them now. But, friends, we must not be known as those psalm singers because we are psalm singers by tradition. You children must not grow up going to this church thinking, well, they sing with psalms, they sing with hymns, they use instruments over there, but rather that we have a deep conviction from the word of God that what we do is pleasing to God. And it is sad to say, as we consider the topic of worship, what a topic that should bring great unity to the church has actually been very divisive. You know, worship itself, which is our bowing down to God, has become an occasion for great division and great strife and great disunity in the church. Uh, What a terrible blemish it is, and how contrary to John chapter 17, that we even speak of something called the worship wars, don't we? 
And what do we speak of in worship wars? First of all, the very notion is contrary to what worship is, which is the entirety of the service. But we often speak of it as the content of sung praise. Some will say you need to sing the old-time hymns. Others will say you must sing contemporary songs. The hymn singers say our songs are richer than contemporary music. The contemporary singers say your songs are antiquated and you must sing a new song. We'll cover that expression next time. It's not what they say it means. But they bicker and they fight over it. But neither ask the most critical question. What would God have us sing? And they go terribly wrong. Frankly, friends, uninspired hymns, and this might be hard to hear if you've never heard of this before, uninspired hymns and contemporary worship songs are the same species. The absolute same. Songs not inspired by the Holy Ghost. But God has authored songs of another species. His 150 psalms. They are so far above, friends, any composition of man, as these are the inspired words of God. They are a means of grace, an ordinance that can convert a man's soul. They are so far above what an uninspired man's words are that they are of a totally different species, a totally different classification. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. These are the things that we see about the word of God, the greatest means of grace itself. And God himself wrote these songs. And God himself wrote these songs to glorify him as he must be glorified. And he has also given us these songs for our edification too. And so what you're going to hear tonight, and maybe you've never heard this before, is that the scripture teaches in worship we must sing the 150 psalms. And you're going to see exclusively so. And you're going to see that this flows also, and this will probably be next time, but it must flow out of our doctrine of the sufficiency of the scriptures. That if you had nothing else in your possession but the word of God, you could worship God, friends, and you wouldn't have to wait for Isaac Watts to roll around in order to give you something to sing. God has not given you a a Bible in negligence. He has given you everything you need in it. If we would embrace this doctrine as the church did for her first six centuries, how the church would be unified today in worship. We would no longer fight the worship wars, but we would worship in spirit and truth. So today we consider the element that is sung praise and the doctrine of exclusive psalmody. And by God's help, we'll consider this theme under three headings. First, exclusive psalmody and our worship principles. This is the fifth sermon, so we're going to review the the prior four and see how exclusive psalmody fits. Second, exclusive psalmody and the scripture. It must be based on the scripture, or else we have no warrant for it. And third, and this often shocks people, exclusive psalmody and historic practice, including ecumenical councils like the Council of Chalcedon that forbade anything but the psalms in worship. So first, exclusive psalmody and worship principles. So in this first heading, I want to review the pillars of worship that God has established. Uh, The first four, as I've mentioned, built our foundation. Now let's hang off of that. We must start always with principles before we come to application. So now we're coming to application. So first, you remember that our worship is holy. Why? Because the God we worship is holy. Right? We are prone to forget Prone to forget, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. In Leviticus 10 verses 1 through 3, I'll remind you of that. God consumed those two priests, Nadab and Abihu, because they forgot that. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, and this is the principle, I will be sanctified or hallowed in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. I will be sanctified in all them that come nigh me. Why? Because I am holy. And because he is holy, His worship must be holy as well. 
And even today, under the new covenant, friends, you are to still approach him with the utmost reverence and godly fear because God has not changed. The New Testament never said God is one iota less holy. And he has not made the worship of God any less holy. Instead, Hebrews 12 says, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. You're meant to remember Nadab and Abihu being consumed in your New Testament. And I just want to remind you, friends, you will never, ever have to worry about these psalms being strange fire. Because God did not just ask for these psalms, but God made these psalms. And they are never going to be strange fire in his eyes. They are a pleasing aroma to him. They are holy songs as he is holy, inspired by the Holy Ghost. And they are holy songs for a holy God. And we know that if we offer them to the Lord, our sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips will be pleasing to him. And I just want to ask you this question. Because sometimes we, we need to know more from our experience, though it should never be this way. We don't believe or we're suspicious of the testimony of the word until it comes to our own experience. So let me ask, how many of you have wrestled over singing an uninspired song of praise? Yeah. Haven't you asked, will God receive this word? You never have to worry about that, friends, with God's psalms, do you? Never. Because he inspired them. So second, worship, we remember, is our service to God. I'll reiterate Hebrews 12, 28, whereby we may serve God, serve God, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The word serve in Greek is where our word liturgy comes from. You remember, uh, divine service. So what you must remember is that while we praise God, we do benefit from the worship service itself, ourselves, First and foremost, it is what? It is service to him. It is service to him. It is meant to please him. You know, in the opening, uh, I, I did cite Malachi 1, where the priests forgot that, didn't they? As I prayed that, that chapter, the priests forgot that this is meant to be for my service. These are my sacrifices. And you wouldn't dare give your governor something defective, but you would come into my courts and give something defective. And we must be afraid that that's going to be us if we come into his courts without a care. We are not the audience for worship, friends. We don't come tonight to do what makes us feel good. Now, at our most sanctified, what pleases God is what we enjoy, right? We are to glorify God and to enjoy him, right, young people? When we're sanctified, what pleases him pleases us. But we must always first ask, what does the Lord want in worship? I know if that were where all our hearts were, friends. You see, this is fundamentally a problem of the heart. To not realize he is the king and I am his servant. I am the servant of the Lord and I am not the king himself. And so we all must ask, not is the worship pleasing to me, but we must all ask, is the worship pleasing to God? And certainly we must never ask, we must never demand what we want in worship. And I'm not so sure all of us have asked the question, am I giving God what pleases him? So, you must ask the question and you must know the answer from the scripture. You must ask, what does God want when I praise him with my lips? I'll answer that more thoroughly in the next heading. But children, I want to encourage you especially Regardless of whether it's worship or anything else, learn to ask the question often. Love the Lord your God. What does he want from me? What is he after in my life? How can I glorify him? Not what can I get out of God? That's the wrong question. Third, the third principle is we must worship according to God's revealed will. This is the regulative principle of worship. That was the principle, is the principle still, in the Reformed churches whether Presbyterian, Reformed, or Baptist. Codified in the major Reformed confessions, including Confession of Faith, chapter 21. In summary, it says, we must only do what is commanded by the Scripture, and all else is forbidden to us. 
If it's not commanded, it is forbidden. Deuteronomy 12.32 explains, What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. So what God has not commanded is forbidden, and what God has commanded we must not neglect, right? And that's the principle in the word of God. So we must not just check before we do something here this afternoon whether it is forbidden by the word, but we must also find that it has been commanded by the word. For instance, sock puppets and plays are not expressly forbidden by the scripture, are they? But they're not commanded by the scripture, and so they are forbidden in worship. And that's why when Nadab and Abihu were consumed, he said they offered strange fire, which he commanded them not. He never said, I forbade these things. He said, I never asked for these things. And so you must not bring them to me. And the reason should be very obvious as to why God expresses this principle of worship. It's because sinners are very sinful and can come up with all kinds of things to do in his holy worship. So much so, if you may riff on the Apostle John, that sinners could come up with so many sinful things to do in worship that all the books in this world could not come up with all the things God would forbid. And so the principle is expressed with efficiency. Do what I command, and I forbid what I do not. Which, by the way, is the same principle of every king. Do what I command, and you must not do anything else, isn't it? That's the principle of kings. Jesus said it this way in Mark 7, 7 through 8. Howbeit, in vain, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. You see, we're in the habit of throwing aside his commandments. We're going to see that. And we hold the traditions of men. He said we love to do it. And that's what actually is legalism, friends. Legalism is the commandments of men, not the commandments of God. And that's why we must make sure that the exclusive psalmody position is the commandment of God tonight. And I suppose first, though, see, this is where we sometimes jump ahead. We must see if singing praise is a commandment of God. You see that? You know, so quickly we can just assume I'm singing praise in the worship of God. But has God even asked for that? Well, that's where we must start. See, but Scripture does say in Hebrews thirteen fifteen, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So we must sing, psalm, uh, sing praise in worship. But then we should ask, should we even be singing psalms? And you find that psalm singing is a commandment in the word of God. For instance, Psalm 105 verse 2 says, Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him. And in other places in the Old Testament as well. You probably know them. But the New Testament, we forget, also has commandments to sing psalms. And people forget it. Colossians 3.16, our text says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5.19 is the same. We'll look at it next week. But you also have James 5.13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. So we must sing praise, but we must also sing psalms as praise. And what you must first see is that even if you do not yet see the exclusive nature of singing them, they must be sung. Do you not see the commandment? You must sing them. So before we, we uh, get everybody upset about singing psalms exclusively, let's just ask, how many psalms have you sung in worship outside of this church? Almost every church in our nation today is guilty of transgressing the commandment of singing psalms. And, and that must grieve you, friends. Forget exclusive psalmody. They don't even sing a single psalm in a service. That by itself is sinful, according to the word of God. Well, the fourth and final pillar I will have you remember is liberty of conscience. 
Oh, God's people are freed from the doctrines and commandments of men. You heard that uh, when our Lord said it in Mark 7 earlier. Luther famously said at Worms, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. That's especially important in the singing of praise because the church, friends, has no power to make you sing something against your conscience. Has no power to do it. For your conscience must be held captive to the word. But nothing in the Psalter could be against your conscience because your conscience must be captive to the word and the Psalms are the word of God, aren't they? But songs of human composition are not. And I have to ask, how many uninspired songs defy the word of God? Let me just start with one that probably all of you have sung if you've been in a hymn-singing church. I remember that there was a hymn I, I, started, uh, I stopped uh, singing when I understood what it was saying. You remember Away in the Manger, right? What is that line that says, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes? The Lord Jesus cried as a baby, friends. To deny that is to deny his humanity. And that's actually a heretical statement. And there are many heretical thoughts that are put into the hearts and minds of God's people with the singing of uninspired praise. It's not only strange fire to God, it also confuses our spiritual perception of who Jesus Christ is. So praise the Lord that our conscience is freed in the singing of psalms. You cannot, see, I just judged a man-made psalm, but you can never, ever judge the psalms as I have judged that psalm. Because the Psalms stand in judgment over you as the word of God. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, what song of men could ever do that? But I hope that as you have sung the songs of Zion, friends, so many times you have been cut to the heart as they have admonished you. When you sing these psalms, they search your mind and heart, they instruct and admonish, they prick your heart, and they make your conscience captive to the word of God and not to men. Well, so I hope you see just that brief overview that the singing of psalms fits these principles of worship that God has established. But now, let's take the next turn and see why they must be sung exclusively in worship. Our second heading, exclusive psalmody in the scripture. Well, let's first ask the question, what is a psalm? As the psalms are in the Hebrew Bible, you might even think that the word psalm is a Hebrew term, but it's actually not. It's a Greek term, psalmos. Now, keep that in mind. It's going to become important later. But our book of praises, the book of psalms, is simply known in the Hebrew Bible as the Tehillim, which means praises. Today, most Christians do not consider them the book of praises. Maybe it's the book of poetry. Maybe it's the book of prayer to them. It's certainly both those. But above all, the intention of God is that it is the book of praises. The book of praises is so sadly neglected by most churches today. Their Hebrew title says that they are meant to be sung as praise. So even before you get to the exclusive part, you must sing these psalms. Now let's dig deeper and establish their exclusivity. Now the psalm The word psalm comes into the New Testament out of the Greek language, as I've said, and it comes out of the Greek Old Testament, right? The Septuagint, uh, that was the translation used at Christ's time. And the New Testament used that translation, uh, the New Testament church used that translation as their translation of Scripture. Now, a psalm, that word, is a translation into Greek of the Hebrew word mizmor. And the Greek word, because it precedes the translation of the scriptures into Greek, the Greek word psalmos, broadly speaking, simply means a song of praise. It's a general term, actually. But to the Jews, you see, it became a more specialized word to refer to the 150 psalms. And as Christians, we have taken on that narrow meaning ourselves, so that when we say psalms, that's what we're talking about. So, with that background, let's consider our sermon text, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, the reason we consider this text is that it is the primary scripture used to justify 
singing of hymns in worship. Uninspired hymns, that is. To find a positive command for uninspired hymns, this text is where most of you must go. For it says, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But first, I want you to see some characteristic of the psalms, characteristics, sorry, of the songs we are told to sing in this verse. What are they first and foremost? Let the word of Christ, the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And friends, I hope I don't have to explain this, but the word of God is the word of Christ, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He himself said of the Psalms, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Have you not seen that over and over again in Hebrews, how Paul has cited the Psalms first and foremost to point us to Christ? So whatever... Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are, they must be the word of Christ. And the exhortation is that these words must dwell in you, dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And where is the word of Christ meant to dwell in you? It's meant to dwell in your heart, friends. Oh, Jeremiah said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Again, This points us to the word of God. And they are to dwell in all wisdom. What did Paul tell Timothy? For from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. You see, you don't even have to get into an exegetical view of this verse without you starting to see the exalted nature of the songs that are being sung. And you know, wisdom is an attribute of the scripture as it is the word of Christ. And these songs here, and this is where really you start to see more and more plainly how this is the word of God. These songs are meant to teach and admonish us, one another. Where will you go to find songs that teach and admonish you, that instruct you? It's the word of God. Man-made hymns, they do not admonish. This morning, consider Psalm 94. Psalm 94 admonished us, asking, why will you not trust God to rise up for you? Why will you not trust me? What man-made composition asks such things? What man-made composition is calling out to God as the God of vengeance? The qualities here in Colossians 3 are qualities the word of God alone possesses. But you might say, now, it still seems to me, pastor, you're skirting the issue. What about hymns and spiritual songs? Why does Paul mention them if we are not to sing them? First, I would say the first mistake we make living in the 21st century is to think that Paul thinks of a hymn the way you think of a hymn and I think of a hymn. As something like Amazing Grace or Isaac Watts' compositions or Hillsong's work, if you can call it that. No, the word psalm is sourced out of the Greek Bible, out of the same place that the word psalm is sourced out of. So too are the words song and hymn. All three are used in the psalm book as titles of the psalms in the Greek Old Testament. And what Bible do you think the Colossian church was using? The Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. You see, friends, for instance, in the Greek Old Testament, the title to Psalm 75 reads this, For the end among hymns, hymnos, a psalm, psalmos, by Asaph, a song, ode, to the Assyrian. A single psalm is called a hymn, a psalm, and a song. Many other psalms are described as hymns and songs as well. Maybe I'll pick that up next time. But there is biblical precedent for calling the psalms hymns and songs. The next objection, and I've heard this, is, but are you saying, Pastor, when Paul wrote, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he's simply saying, sing psalms, psalms, psalms. That seems silly on the face of it. Friends, I want to tell you, it is not silly. It is anything but. The scripture is written this way for emphasis. To use a figure of speech common to Hebrew, Greek, and even English. From the Greek language, because the Greeks were were good at rhetoric, we have a technical rhetorical term for it. It is a hendiatris. A hendiatris. Boys and girls, if you want to note that, H-E-N-D-I-A-T-R-I-S. 
pendiatrist. You might have learned it in English or grammar class. That's a construction of three words used to express a single idea. Let me remind you of some that you have never said were silly in the past. In Exodus 34.7, when the Lord speaks his divine name, he says, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin, all speaking of sin. I know no Christian who dare call Jehovah silly for saying forgiving sin, sin, sin. It's a way to emphasize the point how great his forgiveness is to forgive so much. Deuteronomy 30 verse 16, Moses says, In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. All the while Moses was saying, commandments, commandments, commandments. Trying to emphasize how important the keeping of commandments is. In the New Testament, we hear of signs and wonders and mighty deeds. 2 Corinthians 12.12. In 1 Timothy 2.1, we hear of supplications, prayers, and intercessions. In every case, meant to draw your attention to the importance of the object of that text. And that figure of speech, and maybe you, you know this elsewhere and maybe haven't paid attention, that figure of speech has been used to great rhetorical effect outside the scripture. What did Julius Caesar say? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. Was he talking about three classes of people? No. How about FDR who spoke of the New Deal as relief, recovery, and reform? Friends, all that to say, a uh, hendiatrist is not an unusual rhetorical device It is very common. It is known to the Hebrew mind, the Greek mind, the English mind, the Latin mind, and probably many, many more. But there's other evidence in the New Testament itself that when the New Testament says him, it means psalm. I want to just mention, in Greek, the bare meaning of the word him is a song of praise to a deity. Okay, And that's why a psalm is a hymn. It meets that definition. It's a song of praise to the deity, who is Jehovah. So I just want to say, please do not take contemporary definitions and import them into the Greek language of the first century AD. And you must not see psalms and hymns as two different things to the mind of a Jewish Greek speaker. But back to the New Testament. Consider when Jesus sang with his disciples after Passover. Mark 14, 26. When they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. No biblical scholar ever has said that Jesus Christ and his disciples were singing anything but the great Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118. And that was Jewish practice. They did not sing anything else and neither would have Jesus. And those Psalms, friends, if you would just open them and if you would just sing them, you would see how prophetic they were, waiting to be sung by Jesus that night he was betrayed. What man made him could he sing that night to portray the cross that lay ahead? None are worthy of the 116th psalm that he sang in that block. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord, now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Mary, thou hast loosed my bonds. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. Oh, to sing that with understanding, to imagine our Savior taking that hymn upon his lips. And how about the last Hallel Psalm, the 118th? Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Our Lord Jesus singing of himself being bound to the cross, offered to God. No human hymn is worthy of our Lord's singing as he went to the cross, friends. When he sang those psalms on the night of his betrayal, with the scripture recording them as hymns, Our Lord proved the Psalms are the hymns of Colossians 3.16. Our Lord himself 
before the cross. What I have to remind you of, and the reason I've belabored this here, is that singers of man-made hymns must have positive command to sing them to God. And there's no warrant that you can find for them in the word of God. The Bible points to the exclusive singing of psalms. Next week, I'm going to continue to develop out further objections and arguments. In a way, this is just a taste. But I would even ask, who is worthy of writing songs to put in the lips of God's people? In the Old Testament, it was a prophet. And in the New Testament, there are no more prophets. And the apostles certainly did not provide a songbook for you. So we'll come and consider that next time. But the reason that I want to consider this text is because there, this is the escape hatch, so to speak, for those who would sing uninspired hymns in the worship of God. And you have seen, even in this brief treatment, how it is that the word of God here points us to the Psalms and not to what we consider today as hymns. And uh, I don't even know if anybody I have ever talked to in the uh, uninspired praise side of the church has ever explained particularly the difference between a hymn and a spiritual song. We'll actually consider the exegesis of that in that the word spiritual actually can modify all three words so that they are all three songs of the spirit. These are spirit-filled psalms, spirit-filled hymns, spirit-filled songs. Anyway, I will deal with that next time. I wanted to give you a taste of the argument from the word of God. But I want, as a final heading, because so many are flabbergasted when they hear this, is that I want us to consider historic practice. Because people are often amazed. They think that the Reformed Presbyterian Church and churches like it are in the minority position, and that must make it something bizarre, because the rest of the church as a whole hardly um, sings this way. But first, I want to always remind us that truth is not determined by numbers, but by the Scripture. Oh, John Knox said it well, didn't he? that a man uh, uh, in the minority with God is in the majority, isn't he? A man with God is in the majority. So truth is not determined by numbers. And I also want you to remember, if you think that's the way truth works, once upon a time, this was completely reversed. And, and hymn singers were the heretics. I'm not going to make the case that hymn singers today are heretics. But they were the ones who introduced heresies in the church. And it was the Orthodox church that sang only the Psalms. Not man-made hymnody. In those days, to sing uninspired hymns would put you in the company of men like Arius, friends. Our practice is the practice of the early church. And it doesn't start in the, the Christian church. It started in the Jewish church, in the synagogues, where the psalms alone were sung a cappella because they actually understood the worship of God. And they understood that the temple had instruments. We'll deal with instruments another time. But the synagogue was no place for human compositions, nor was it a place for instruments. And the psalms were only sung a cappella in the synagogue. And as an aside, I was talking to some of the men as we were praying this morning. I don't think the Jews are going to be ingathered in the church until the songs of Zion, their heritage, are being sung by the Christian church pointing them to Jesus Christ out of their own heritage, friends. Until that day comes, I don't see the Jews being ingathered. Until they hear the Psalms that are sung, as Jesus would say, these are they that testify to me. That aside, in the first five centuries of the church, her practice was exclusive psalmody. No hymns of human composition were allowed, only the 150 psalms exclusively. And you think about that time, friends. It was the time in which the church was most unified. The time in which the church formulated with clarity who Jesus Christ is in the ecumenical councils. The time when the church spread like wildfire across the world by the Holy Spirit's power. It was the time when all of God's people sang the 150 psalms exclusively with one voice in worship. The church father Chrysostom, Archbishop of Constantinople, wrote in the 4th century, the Psalms of David were first, middle, and last in the assemblies of the Christians. Augustine, when he contended against the Donatists in the 5th century, wrote, 
The Donatists reproach us with our grave chanting of the divine songs of the prophets in our churches, while they inflame their passions in their revels by the singing of psalms of human composition. (laughs) Wow, if he could see what goes on in the church here, inflaming their passions. That's what so much of the church is doing. In their revels by the singing of psalms of human composition, which rouse them like the stirring notes of the trumpet on the battlefield. But when the brethren are assembled in the church, why should not the time be devoted to singing of sacred songs? It was the heretics that sang the uninspired praises of human composition. And uninspired hymnody came into the church by heretics like the Arians and the Donatists. Uh, Few remember this anymore or maybe conveniently neglect to consider it. But the early church councils outlawed uninspired hymns. Schaff, in his History of the Christian Church, notes the Council of Laodicea, about AD 360, prohibited the ecclesiastical use of all uninspired or private hymns, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451 confirmed this decree. (laughs) Think about this. The very council that gives you the Chalcedonian formulation on Orthodox Christology is the same council that prohibited hymns of private compositions in the churches. Why? Because the Arians and their heirs were trying to make God's people sing unorthodox truth. Truths like that in, uh, falsehoods rather, that were like those in a way in a manger. It's very subtle, friends. But unorthodoxy comes into the hearts and minds of people because the heretics know this truth, friends, that if you control the songs of God's people, you control their heart and their mind. How often do you have songs stuck in your heart and mind that you will sing even unthinkingly just because that's what you've sung? And the heretics always understood that. But the psalms... Friends, the Psalms are the guardians of orthodoxy, for they testify to Jesus Christ. Is that not how Paul, again, in Hebrews 1 and 2, defends the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ through the Psalms? And that's why the councils, especially Chalcedon, said, only sing the Psalms. Now, I'm not saying, I'll say it again, because some might misunderstand. I'm not saying today's hymn singers are heretics. I'm not saying that, but that's how hymnody came into the church. And uninspired hymnody did not begin to become a feature of Christian assemblies until sometime in the 6th century. Now, if you know church history, what coincided with that? It was the rise of the papacy. The rise of the papacy, friends, and the corruption of the gospel. History has always shown that churches that abandon the gospel abandon exclusive psalmody first. There's no way you can sing Psalm 51 or Psalm 32 and not see that salvation is entirely of the grace of God. But I'm a sinner. And the only sacrifice that the Lord accepts is a contrite heart, friends. You will lose the gospel as soon as people put into your hearts and minds other falsehoods, especially about Christ. And so it's no surprise then at the Reformation The Reformed churches restored the singing of psalms. You remember Calvin, he created the Genevan Psalter and not a hymnal. And his introduction to that Psalter is beautiful. I'll just cite a bit of it. Moreover, that which St. Augustine has said is true, that no one is able to sing things worthy of God except that which he has received from him. Therefore, when we have looked thoroughly and searched here and there, we shall not find better songs nor more fitting for the purpose than the Psalms of David, which the Holy Spirit spoke and made through him. And moreover, when we sing them, we are certain that God puts in our mouths these as if he himself were singing in us to exalt his glory. What a view of the Psalms that is, friends. As if he were singing in us. No one able, this is Augustine, no one is able to sing things worthy of God except that which he has received from him. The word of God dwelling in us richly. Now, full disclosure, if you go look this up, uh, Calvin never permitted 
the singing of uninspired hymns, but his Genevan Psalter had metrical versions of a few Bible texts, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and Simeon's Prayer. Now, I think Calvin was inconsistent on that, given what he has just said. I'll deal with that next time. But he never put anything uninspired into the lips of God's people. It was all the word of God in Geneva. And when our Westminster Assembly came a century later and drew out the element of sung praise, they said it must be the Psalms. It must be the Psalms. Chapter 21, 5, the singing of Psalms with grace in the heart. And the assembly, you remember, authorized the production of a psalter and not a hymnal. And that psalter ended up becoming the 1650 psalter in the hands of the Scottish church. And that's what we sang from this morning. And the Reformed Presbyterians, our denomination, continued from that time all the way today. And we're not the only Presbyterians to do so. The FCC, the PRC, and many other bodies maintain it. And it's not just the, the Presbyterians, the Dutch Reformed. Uh, like in the HRC, who you might know as Joel Beakey's denomination, and the FRCNA do so as well. And what we've remarked at as a denomination, and also with our brothers uh, here in these other denominations, is that today many more Christians are being led by the Spirit to this position of exclusive psalmody today. And such denominations are experiencing great growth, praise God. And I do believe as Christ reforms his bride more are going to put away uninspired praise and pick up the psalms. So that more churches today, it's wonderful, than 10 years ago are singing with one voice in many nations. You think about some of these psalms. Psalm 100, All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, His praise foretell. Come ye before Him and rejoice. And how many more believers when they pass into the next life, are now more attuned to singing, and not just saying, but singing, Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear none ill, for thou art with me, and thy rod and staff me comfort still. No hymn, as beautiful as it is, can ever give you that comfort. Why? This is God's word. That means it's his promise to you. I cannot write a promise for God, but he has given such great promises. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear none ill, for thou art with me, and thy rod and staff me comfort still. We pray that Christ's church would reclaim the songs of Zion. It used to be part and parcel of the Christian church. I know in this congregation, especially today, we have one young man who's out, but in this church, in this gathering today, none of you have claimed exclusive psalmody as a birthright. All of you have come in by God's Spirit to sing the songs of Zion. And we praise God for that. That means God continues to raise up more who desire to sing his word. And our churches are starting to grow because of that. As we have also seen where the futility of singing uninspired praise is. So many of you have told me that maybe you didn't subscribe to exclusive psalmody, but you came here because it was safe. And the reason it's safe is all the principles we've laid out here. But I want you to go from it being safe to this being what glorifies God. Because our cares and our concerns are secondary. It's great for liberty of conscience, yes. But first and foremost, no man can sing things worthy of God save those things he has received from God, as Calvin has said. And that truth must be in your heart. Next time you're going to see in our next sermon, you're going to see the sufficiency of the Psalter as well. You know, Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God is found in the whole psalm book. Luther said it's a little Bible. Calvin said it's the anatomy of the soul. This morning we sang of God as the God of vengeance. When was the last time you ever sang that in the Christian church? If the church is going to be reformed, if the church is going to experience revival, friends, then the church must pick up these songs. Our church, and I believe this wholeheartedly because I believe this is what the word of God says, that singing anything but psalms in worship is strange fire. Now I know it's hard to say that, But out of love, friends, I say it. As we said last time, let the righteous smite me, it will be a kindness. We do not anathematize those who sing uninspired hymns. We're, after all, part of NAPARC, 
and we have lots of brothers and sisters who do not uh, agree with us on this point. But part of our um, fellowship with other believers is to urge them to reformation. Our churches need reformation and they need revival. Has any man said that the state of the church is wonderful right now? No. This church, our church included, as well as all the churches of the nation, need reformation, friends. We ourselves were chastised in our sermon series on evangelism. And we admitted we sinned in not evangelizing the lost in a, as a congregation. That is healthy. That is what Reformation and Revival looks like. A constant humbling ourselves before God. And a remembrance that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who covers our sins. Jesus Christ, who mediates our worship and our service and even our petty and insufficient singing of praise. And He makes it acceptable to God. So friends, we do not do this to anathematize anybody. Instead, we want reformation and revival. Jesus said again, if you love me, keep my commandments. Especially in worship, friends. Do what he says. Worship him in a way he finds pleasing. Sing the psalms to him only in worship. Now, we've only scratched the surface of this doctrine. But I exhort you, never forget that the psalms are the words of Christ. So, beloved, sing to Christ with the words he has given you to praise him. We'll continue, as I said, next time on this theme and deal with objections. But for now, please rise for prayer. Oh God, we ask first you would make it our desire, Lord, to be well-pleasing to you in all things especially in divine worship. Oh, Lord, help us treasure your psalm book that your Holy Spirit has inspired that ranks so far above the compositions of men we cannot even comprehend the gulf between uninspired praise and that which you have given us. Help reform your churches to rediscover the singing of psalms. Help reform our own church in the ways that we are defective and deficient in pleasing you, O Lord. Father, you know we do not hold ourselves out as a standard for other churches, but together, Lord, we strive to be with all of your people, more and more faithful in the things you have committed to us. For we believe Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship, and he is worthy of the worship that he desires. Help make that our heart's desire. Help us treasure and know the psalms that you have given. Oh, how they have been neglected by your people, Lord, in recent years. But we are grateful for the work you are doing in your church to revive your people, to sing out your praise. And may that be health and nourishment to your people as well. Father, we thank you for your word that is sufficient for everything we need, for every good work. Help us to remember that and help us believe that. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.